Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with East Tennessee State University's Dr. Brad DeWeese. Guys, we're going to talk about speed and power. When you talk with people from ETSU, I mean, that's what we know that they're known for. So we're going to start talking with Dr. DeWeese after we get a little intro background of how he got to ETSU. We're going to talk about track and field. We're going to talk about how it's impacted him both as a professor and how it's driven his career as a coach. His background is very heavy in track. It's actually where he started in coaching, so that's some pretty neat stuff. He gets into coaches and professors who have driven him to become a better coach and who has impacted him and how these impacts have occurred. A really neat story of how he got, uh, got mixed in with guys like Derek Hansen, Carl Vallier, and, and how he got in with the Stones. Then, you know, he's well-known right now for his work that he's been doing with USA Bobsled and how a track guy gets into winter sports, you know, and, and where that fits and how his methods have been, you know, manipulated and molded based upon those sports. We get into this whole sports science thing, you know, and it, where he sees it, you know, both in academia and as a coach, his thoughts on what that is, where he sees it, and how it should be implemented. Extremely interesting and, and really eye-opening stuff. That in and of itself is definitely worth sitting here to listen to, guys, along with the methods he's using, what he's doing to monitor his athletes at all of these levels, both at ETSU with the track and field athletes and with his Olympians. You know, what, what tests he uses, what methods he's using, and how this impacts his training, and how it manipulates what they're doing. It's really fascinating stuff, and I, I'm really grateful for Brad to take the time out and talk with us today. I hope you guys enjoy the talk as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Dr. DeWeese, thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So for the people listening and watching, let's just give them a, a quick background of, of who Dr. DeWeese is and how we got to ETSU. Okay. Well, uh, I got to UTSU where I guess I'll start with what I do there now. So we have a really unique uh, position within the university. So we are a fully designated USOC Olympic training site. So right now we have uh, letters of understanding with USA weightlifting. We have USA bobsled, skeleton. We have USA canoe kayak. And then we work with independent athletes from luge, track and field, karate, cycling, and many others, just who depends on the contacts we have within the national teams. Uh, and a lot of our day-to-day -day operations are by the faculty. So all the faculty, there's only four or five yeah. of us. So we're all full-time coaches. Uh, we get to teach. And so our focus is sports science, but really like my role is to, is as a coach is to go into the classroom with these PhD students wanting to learn sports science, give them my perspective. Like how are you going to take all that information from the literature, from the research, and explain it to a coach and explain it to me so then we can improve what we do on the field or the weight room or the track on a daily basis. And it also gives really uh, a unique opportunity for those students because we're the only school in the country where kids, and I say kids, but uh, these young professionals can do a dissertation or a thesis literally studying the monitoring data, the training loads, the velocity of the of the reps in the weight room, wow. everything they can study that stuff on a case study of a national team or Olympic athlete. And they walk out of there with experience with elite athletes and understanding how all that information relates to the field. So then they can go and be a practitioner 
and not sit in an ivory tower. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at now. I came here from the U.S. Olympic Committee's uh, Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid. So my job there was to oversee the sport physiology of uh, the winter sport teams. Essentially, that was just a job title, but I was still the strength conditioning coach, speed coach. But Lake Placid, I was hired there primarily because I was a jack of all trades. Uh, I understand speed. That's my background. Strength conditioning. Uh, I have a degree in sport nutrition. So that was that was needed because we didn't have a resident nutritionist in Lake Placid. Uh, so I was kind of like this decathlete, if you will. I'm not really knowledgeable in one specific thing. I just know how to do a, a little bit of everything. Um, and really, I, I came to the USOC from my time spent wow. working with Team USA athletes from USA Canoe Kayak, weightlifting, track and field since 2003. And I was doing all that while I was a Division One track and field coach and a head strength coach all at the same time down at UNC Asheville. So uh, I guess I don't like to rest very often like none of us do. Yeah, down there with the aces, huh? Yeah. So since the sandwich is kind of the bread's been track and field, Yep. let's start there. Let, let's talk about your work with track. Let's, let's talk about things that you do. And let's even go back and say, when you were down there working with the Aces, what are things that you liked, disliked now that you're, you know, just a couple years fast forwarded to ETSU? Like things that you've carried with you, things that you look back and you're just like, oh man, you know, what, what are the things that were awesome that are always going to be awesome? And what are the things that are like, if we could turn back time, as Cher would say? Uh that's a good question. I think as any coach probably does. I mean, we, it's almost embarrassing to look back at your training programs you write even yesterday. You always just you don't want anybody to see that stuff. Uh, it's almost like I call it um, imposter syndrome, where one minute we think we're Jesus and the next minute we think we're the you know it's like somebody's going to figure out we don't know anything. Uh, and I, I typically feel like somebody's going to find me out at any moment uh, if they haven't already done so. But I guess with track, it was kind of an interesting venture into that. Uh, you know, I, when I got to UNCA, I had just finished uh, being a grad assistant at Western Carolina and um, was within the strength conditioning department, had tried track and field a little bit after baseball, wasn't successful at either one of them, uh, just kind of an average Joe. So I, I left my GA at Western and was given this opportunity to really to go at UNC Asheville, so a Division One school, and be the assistant track coach, but also start the strength and conditioning program, which was perfect for me because that's what I did, and I knew a little bit about track and field, just enough to be really dangerous. Hmm. And at the time, when I first got the job, I did probably like everybody else did back in the late 90s. I, uh, I went by USATF Level 2 curriculum. So we had a special endurance day, a special endurance one day, a speed endurance day, a mobility day. And it wasn't until probably 2000 or 2001 that a friend of mine introduced me to the Charlie Francis forums, and that kind of blew my mind. I mean, you had Joel Williams on there at the time as Pioneer. You had Carl Valet on there as Clemson. I mean, there was you had Derek Hansen as number two. And, and so you had all these really young coaches who were very knowledgeable, and it really helped us thrive under – Charlie's mentorship and guidance and kind of helping us along over the internet. And that really just blew my mind. And 
ever since then, you know, when I was introduced to vertical integration and short to long, it completely changed my mindset when it came to speed development and how strength conditioning married into it. And then when we held the uh, 2003 USATF Level 2 and Level 3 schools in Asheville, I met Dr. Mike Stone and had read his stuff when I was in college and had a chance to, to kind of talk with him. And then I was like, I'm going to steal him too. So I'm going to make sure he's one of my mentors. And so then I was able to really fine tune what I was doing in the weight room with what he calls phase potentiation on top of Charlie's vertical integration and finally was able to blend track concepts with the weight concepts. And then, you know, fast forward, just like the rest of us, becoming more familiar with conjugate sequential and just making sure that we can actually have primary, secondary, tertiary goals on the track that merge with the weight room. And so over time, I feel like I've been able to kind of put together a confidently speaking, somewhat of a successful program uh, that's logical and makes you know sense. And so the bread and butter is, uh, you know, we focus on acceleration first, regardless of the length of the sprinter, if it's a one, two or a 400 meter runner. Uh, we still start with, you know, true speed. And then my goal is to create a speed reserve. And so I want to make sure that you can run a fast 200 before you can run a 400, because it's all about a lactic development. I mean, if you look at weigh-ins research that shows under hypoxic or normoxic conditions, sprinters within a minute basically can run the same time. So again, it kind of affirmed exactly what I learned from Charlie. So we could say that, you know, that cliche that Charlie was ahead of the science. And so uh, it's been really interesting, I guess, to circle back to be able to do all this monitoring and what some people call sports science or research you know, over the past decade with these Team USA athletes to kind of show that the speed reserve works and that strength training with phase potentiation or conjugate sequential works because of the monitoring data just shows step by step how that fits in. So, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's not really anything I would go back and change because even all those things I did wrong, like running people to death or running, you know, long intervals, walk across the track and start over again. All that taught me, you know, it didn't work. So it really challenged my mindset and made me who I am today. So, you know, I, I think the my mentors helped me and also just me failing by myself before I was able to identify who those mentors were, were those were the best teaching moments I've had, still have. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big time list of people to learn from, uh, you know, just Charlie and the Stones. I mean, it's I mean, that it doesn't get much much higher level than that. Um, Derek's actually going to be here uh, in July. I'm actually really excited. He's a uh, he's a super guy. I got to meet him up at Boston at, at Art Horn's gig. Um, he's he really is just a he's as, as fantastic of a person as he is a coach. So it's uh, I'm excited to have him around. Um. So now let's fast forward then or backtrack depending on which side we're talking from. A track guy getting into winter sports. A winter yeah. sport that isn't indoor track. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about that because you actually have a pretty neat discussion um, on the ETSU uh, YouTube page where um, some, a, a nice woman is talking to you about about the bobsled and, and things of that nature. So, so let's get into that. Let's get into how you got into the winter sports and how track impacted that. And then coming back to track, how did the winter sports impact track? 
Okay, yeah. Uh, it's actually interesting because, you know, I think what really got me into Lake Placid was, you know, they kind of, they kind of go after who they want to go after. And it, it helps to be in the family and in the network. And uh, I was working with USA Canoe Kayak at the time. And here, I'm a guy that, like I said, I'm from the mountains of North Carolina, but I'd never been in a kayak. I'm not this outdoor water sport kind of guy. I grew up playing baseball, you know. So uh, they approached me and said, we're looking for a strength and conditioning coach, you know, because they're training sites out of Charlotte. And the coaches at the time said, we would like to change what we do in the boat to resemble what track and field coaches think. And so, again, my background in track and the fact that I was track and strength really helped me get a, this, you know, this land, this opportunity with canoe kayak, because I was able to go in and say, OK, here's how you can develop acceleration in the boat, similar to how you develop the energy systems for a track and field athlete. So proving myself with them, I was able to be recommended for Lake Placid. And so I went through that process. And again, what really resonated with the people that made that hiring choice, at least is the way I understand it, is that that my background in speed development was essential because my primary sport was going to be bobsled and skeleton. And you can actually argue that luge, luge, which is an upper body sport, you know, they strike the, the ice and it's very much similar. It's front side mechanics with the hand. And then you want to prevent triple extension in the back where there's so much force generated that they don't have time to triple extend. So even the luge athletes, there's a, there's a relationship to what I learned from track and field. And so, you know, our mission going into Sochi was to win the start. We wanted to, we had the best athletes. So we wanted to make sure that we had the best start times. And, and that was kind of like our mission. So we brought in, you know, a really nice staff to complement the goal of Lake Placid. And then we were able to, you know, the, the leaders believed in this monitoring system. So we kind of just created a monitoring system with the ISO pull, reactive jumps, ISAC body composition. We were able to get 20 meters of OptiGates. And so it was allow, allowing us to see how we were developing these athletes that we would find or that we retained from Vancouver and how do we get them on the podium again. And so it was all really based on we've got to win the start because we have Holcomb. Holcomb's the best driver on the planet. So how can we put the best horses on the sled behind him and all the way down to Nick Cunningham on USA 2? And then at the time we had Corey Butner as USA 3. So again, we went out with talent identification, tried to find wow. the best athletes we possibly could, make sure they were okay with getting micro concussions, basically sitting in a garbage can for a minute and then just make them as fast and humanly as strong as possible. So yeah. Yeah, I, I believe what, what your comment was to the, and I, I'm drawing a blank with what her name was, and she really did a great job with the interview, was it's like you lift weights, you sprint, and then you go tan. And yeah. You, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which is neat. So let's talk about, you brought this monitoring stuff up twice, and of course, 2016, there's nothing sexier than what people do with monitoring. And you, you mentioned the, the ISO poll too. Yeah. But you said that first. So let's work our way back. You had 20 meters of OptiGate? Yeah. So we have 20 meters of OptiJump in Lake Placid. And then I was fortunate enough. I have a good relationship with Dr. Peter Gorman, the, the I guess, owner of Microgate USA. And so he's worked with me. And we have 20 meters of, at ETSU's Olympic training site 
again, because when we train, I want to make sure that everything we do actually changes the athlete's sprint mechanics like we think it does. So I don't want to lie to myself or lie to my athletes. And it's not one of those things that I hate my athletes feeling like a lab rat. So I like things that just are out there, you know, so it kind of remain, you know, like sports science to me is maintaining ecological validity. It's like sitting in a deer, it's sitting in a tree stand and you're watching the deer rather than trying to catch the deer. And so again, that's the way I think of it. And so, you know, the opti jump, which I really rely on to make sure that my athletes or the ones that I coach, you know, for speed are actually training the way they should and everything that we do on the, in the weight room transfers over. I like it because it's just on the track and it's out of the way. And then we actually have the timing gates to make sure we can actually see, you know, 10 meters on, 20 meters on, we can get a 30 meter fly. And so, you know, the ISO pull is one of those things that, you know, Dr. Mike Stone is, has really spearheaded and has been doing for probably two or three decades and not a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon, but it really gives us an opportunity to see how somebody is developing in the weight room as far as you can get a max all day long, but a max is based on fatigue and also mechanics. So it's a way to clean up mechanics, get them out of the way and actually see how strong somebody is and measure rate of force development. And so, uh, it can be costly. We've tried to figure out ways to not make it so costly, but that's the one thing I would say is not ecologically valid, but I use it as a monitoring tool just so I can make better blocks and training phases for my athletes. So, um, yeah, I mean, when we were in Lake Placid, you know, we had Sornex, um, you know, we had a Sornex ISO, like a full squat rack they, that we had pre-custom built. And Pasco force plates. I mean, Pasco, you can get less than $1,000 for two. And then, uh, you know, in, in down at ETSU, we still have, we have Rice Lake. So we have some pretty expensive, you know, dual force plates. But you can make it work. Uh, but monitoring, yeah, it's sexy. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. It's been around forever, but now everybody wants to say they monitor. Monitor could be simply just putting chalk on your hands and seeing how high you jump uh -huh. on the wall. But, you know, sexier doesn't always mean it's better. It's basically, as a coach, whatever you choose to monitor with, as long as you can make better decisions in your training, that's what counts. So you don't have to spend $1,000 every time you turn around. And I think that's what frustrates us all, is that it's, it's now a, a money game and keeping up with the Joneses and it really should just be what can inform you as a coach the best. Well, let's talk about how you used each one of those tools then and maybe how they led to your decisions going forward. So I, I missed the third one. So we had the ISO pull, the opt jump, and then there was one in the middle. So, yeah, reactive jump. Or we just do, you know, static and counter-movement jumps. We go from 0 to 10K, 20K, and uh, some people went 30K. So we would do a series of those. And then we would look at percent drop off. And then the last one is we would do body composition, but we would use ISAC because I was looking at some of skin folds, but more importantly, looking at girth measures and seeing where athletes specifically lost fat or were had a, a disposition to gain more muscle mass or if we were training them correctly. So that came in, the body composition came important for bobsled because we want most of their mass near the bottom of the sled, obviously, so the G forces can push them there without any wavering of the sled so you know every sport has its homogenous group you're trying to create and so the body composition was kind of like that latter part of the monitoring that we used on a weekly to monthly basis on top of all those other things so that's going to drive just hypertrophy type decisions 
Yes. So now Perfect. let's go back and let's say we're looking at the the opti jump and we're looking at your flying thirties and your tens and your twenties. How is that driving your decisions? So let's say how would you take athlete A, look at that information and now change the next block? So if I'm looking on the track, <clears throat> it's and one thing I'll say before I get started is I look at everything from ten thousand feet in the air. So I don't I don't try to, to separate what happens in the weight room from what happens on the track. So I'm looking at everything is from what concentrated load there is in both and how do they merge together. So if I'm looking at 10 meters and I'm looking at the overall finish time or sprint characteristics, hopefully an athlete is going to learn to use their force better. So they're positioning themselves, what some people call horizontal force, but it's actually vertical force, vertical to the body. The, the body is just turned horizontally. So they're pushing. And so hopefully what you see as they're improving their strength in the weight room, it transfers over and hopefully you would see greater stride length. So they're getting more transfer, they're getting more displacement out of each step. And then hopefully neurologically you would allow them to see a greater rate of frequency. And then again, as they start getting up to top speed, so 30 meters, obviously we're looking at shorter ground contacts. And if the ground contacts are getting slower at 30 meters or 20 meters and beyond, then obviously something's wrong. It's either fatigue, it's either a biomechanical issue, which could be related to uh, mobility. It could be related to just too much hypertrophy, too much body weight. So again, what I'm looking at is every spatiotemporal characteristic. So what happens when they're on the ground? And I'm trying to look at every other variable around it and seeing what coaching decision I made poorly or accurately that led to that specific zone on the track or specific characteristic. Are there any that you would eliminate? So like, I would think that there has to be some where it would be like, these are the situations that I would bring up to the coach um, versus these are the situations that I would be hoping to address completely in the weight room. Yeah. Uh, A lot of the time, you know, when you're in a strength conditioning role and you're not the primary sport coach, you have to be very uh, respectful and political on how you deliver some information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I find myself doing is I may not get caught up in showing them like, here's ground contact time. Here's the ratio between heel strike and toe off. I may not get into that because we also use a JICO, like a gyroscope that we can look at sway. I may not bring all that up. What I may say is that, okay, in the weight room, we're seeing that the strength is transferring over. So yeah, this overall time dropped and we're actually seeing they're covering more ground per stride. Or maybe this athlete used to spin their tires in the mud. So I'll try to explain things and I'll say instead of frequency, I'll say, okay, this athlete spun their tires in the mud, took choppy steps. Now that we've cleaned them up as far as now they can use their strength, you can actually see stride length increasing. Uh, So again, I'm always trying to figure out an easy way to deliver the information if I'm in that role of sports scientist and strength coach. But most of the time, I guess I'm at a point in my career where I get to be all of the above. So I just, I, I get to choose the athletes I coach and then those athletes, I do all the monitoring and then I've just observed the data myself. Um, so really it depends on the athlete, but I try to look at 
everything and just make a comparison because it's hard to dissociate between frequency and length. It's hard to look at, you know, where they strike on the ground and frequency. You can't just pull one and make a decision on it. And I call that sometimes that when you're young or when you really don't know how to use a piece of equipment, it's kind of like when you pick up in the Bible and you want to pick to one verse and be like, see, I told you, but you got to take it all into perspective. And so again, I'm just a redneck that relies on all these uh, ways of explaining things. But, um, but again, for me, for me to make sense of all of it, I have to look at every variable and then I have to look at the video or I have to sit there and watch the athlete sprint because it's sometimes it's just situational. It's day to day. I mean, sometimes if we take it and take it to the outside track that we use, it's on a high school. It may be more, you know, softer, cushiony than our indoor track. So therefore, you're going to see slightly longer ground contacts. And I have to understand that that was just the environment, not the athlete. Right. So. No, that's really cool. And so, again, I would be remiss if we don't have a legitimate discussion about this mid-thigh pole. Let's let's break that down. Let's, first of all, let's tell people what exactly it is. Okay. And then let's talk about how this contributes to what you're doing. So the mid-thigh pole is basically what originally started off as like a full rack or a half rack. And you try to put an immovable barbell that is at mid-thigh. And a lot of people, you know, have a misconception of what mid-thigh is. Like if you go around the room and you say, where's mid-thigh? Sometimes people will lean over at the trunk and it'll be right above the knee. Sometimes they'll go at the true mid-thigh. And then what we call mid-thigh is, is denoted by like 120 degree flexion of the knee, a vertical trunk. And so you're in what we call the peak power, peak force position. And a lot of people call it the athletic stance. So the bar is really at your pocket. And you're trying to drive, so you line up the shoulders, you, you inflate the chest, cover the bar, so you try to have the shoulders almost sitting over the hips, which sit over the midfoot of the, or the heel, so that way they're producing and pushing all their force directly into the force plate. And so what we do is we, we put the athletes hopefully on a, on a dual force plate, they get them in a position where they pull from, so you know, my thing is, is don't do a test if you don't do it in training. So we rely heavily on the Olympic lifts. Uh, we rely heavily on the derivatives. So we do a ton of mid-thigh pulls during our training. That's kind of like our bread and butter for concentrated load of, of strength or force retention during a strength speed block. So we use the mid-thigh pull year round. So the athletes know where to pull from. So what we do is we put the athletes on the force plate. We put the bar at the right position. So let's say 72 centimeters. We clamp it down and then we give two trials. We say, okay, 50%, 75%, which is just perception to kind of get them ready to get them locked in. And then we typically do two full real hundred percent efforts with three minutes rest in between. And so uh, I guess I'd be remiss to say that, you know, the hands are the weakest link in pulls. So we have to typically use like a gymnastics hook. So the wraps with the metal hook in the middle, or we actually tape their hands to the bar, which is not comfortable, but it gets the job done. Uh, it looks kind of archaic. When people come in and see that, they're just like, I'm leaving. Uh, <laughs> but uh, We've been known to have people's nosebleeds when they're doing the test. It's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that crazy. But again, you what you're doing is essentially – you know, the peak power position, it's your athletic stance. Uh, so you pull on the force plate 
or you're, you're pulling on the bar, pushing down the force plate. And what we do is we essentially get a force curve and we look at peak force and then we look at time to peak force and then we start getting into more specifics. So we look at time to peak force and then we look at force at 50 milliseconds, which is the time to strike. We look at peak force at 90 milliseconds, which is roughly ground contact time in a sprint. And then we look at two or 250 milliseconds, which is the time it takes to descend and come up for a jump shot or just jump in general or clear the blocks. And so we have those three time periods that we look at force there. And then we look at rate of force development. So the relationship between, you know, the spike or, you know, underneath is impulse. So the rate of force development is how explosive they are, how quickly they produce that strength at 50, 90, 2, and 250. And then we have the ability to go in and do, be specific. We could look at 0.83 milliseconds, which is ground contact time for an elite sprinter. But again, you get the idea. I mean, we typically stick with those general time frames to make comparisons between sports or between athletes. Um, and then we do allometrically scale for body weight. So we can actually classify and say this athlete per this athlete. But again, we get that data and then we can look at a snapshot for individually. So we can say, how do you line up to other wide receivers or how do you line up to other bobsled brakemen who are on the right side? Uh, so we can say, okay, you need to be six, one long arms. You need to be able to produce 6,000 newtons of you know peak force and we need to we can say that most elite bobsledders can produce 35,000 newtons per second at 90 milliseconds so again we have that ability to kind of talent ID because we've got years of data and then we can also just use it to inform us and say okay this athlete went through a max strength block but their peak force didn't increase so something we didn't do something right we didn't choose the loads correctly or we were they were over fatigued, so we can look at all those variables and then again make changes as we move forward. So if we just look at those three points, so it was 0 0.5, 0 0.9, and 25, right, or 250. Yep. Quick, simple snapshot. If you're looking to improve A, B, or C, mm -hmm. you as a coach, what are you looking for each one of those specific areas? So the, the explosive speed, the 0.5, you're going to see that enhanced more. So number one, it's, as Dr. Stone says, and everybody gets crazy, and they're like, oh, here we go again. Strength matters. Strength does matter. <laughs> Can't be too strong. And, and you know, uh, people always go, well, that's just what strength coaches say to keep their jobs. No, it's, it's true. You know, so when you simply just expose yourself to the ability to produce higher force, the entire force curve moves up and to the right. So by default, the stronger you are, the greater rate of force development you have. So if you get stronger, rate of force development goes up even at 50 milliseconds. But what we've seen is that 50 and 90 are more sensitive to speed strength. So what some people would call like power output, so lighter weights, you know, higher velocities, so when you get into the speed strength phase of conjugate sequential, that's when you can really see 50 and 90 improve. But typically speaking, if you're doing everything right throughout the training year, those numbers should slightly go up or maintain even in a max strength block because you should still surf the curve throughout the week. You should surf the curve during a training session because you've got warm-up sets and warm-down sets. 
So it's not like when you go in a max strength block, you're going to slow the bar down. And so that's what I really appreciate Dr. Mann doing in the velocity-based training because they're remembering, you know, it's remembering that you are going to have to surf the curve. You don't have to do it every day, but as long as the athlete's exposing themselves to different loads, you're going to get strong and it's going to transfer over to the track or to the field and you're going to get fast. So again, whatever you need to do to help you see that, you know, like I had a Tendo unit. I thought I was the coolest thing on the planet back in 2003. We got a Tendo unit and started doing velocity-based training. And, you know, I was having to send it in every year to get the string fixed. You know? <laughs> so I probably spent more in having to ship it back than I have to pay for it. But again, you know, it's it's one of those things that just helps make sure, like if you stick with a programming philosophy like conjugate sequential, that you're actually doing what you say you do. So again, that you know, 50 milliseconds we see more with the speed strength 90 milliseconds is still going to be sensitive to top you know like peak force you know moving the force curve over and also strength speed speed strength and we've also seen 250 milliseconds be very sensitive to how strong an athlete is obviously if you're a weak athlete 250 milliseconds the rate of force there is going to be low so we've seen that the stronger athletes actually produce higher rates of force at 250 which has also been noted when we do the the counter movement jumps and the static jumps percent fall off is lower as we move up in loads. So again, you can look at the impulse curve too. So, uh, you know, it, the ISO pull for me is one of those things that reaffirms everything we do in the jumps. So if I don't have a lot of time on my hands, I don't like to overwhelm the athletes with tests. I like to keep things as simple as possible. I've pretty much come to the conclusion I can do an ISO pull on a day that we do pulls like on a Wednesday. And I can do the sprint testing any day of the week because we sprint Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I rely heavily on those two just because they inform me personally, you know, quite a bit. No. Yeah. And I can see where that one test. I mean, obviously, like you said, it, it would be expensive and it may not be something that everybody has the resources to do. But I could see where that would be really vital to providing like quick snapshots and it's like you know is the garmin working or are we we go in the wrong direction here you know? yeah yeah and that's you know i've i've got some friends who they're actually trying to build and i you know i put it on twitter and i got a prototype they're actually trying to build a really cheap and inexpensive iso pull rig i think i, I don't want to sell it too short but i'm pretty sure they're trying to keep it below like $2,000, which is unheard of. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you know, my thing is, if you can get the force plates from like Pasco, they, maybe I, we should get an endorsement from them. Uh, <laughs> Pasco for less than a thousand for two force plates. And I'm sure there's some, you know, other options out there. Again, I'm not selling a specific product. I'm just throwing something, you know, that I know that works out there. And then if you can get an ISO pull rig, or if you can just get something in your weight room and load the bar down, but then you got to worry about the flex of the bar. You know, if you can get that under $3,000, I mean, that's something that, again, for me personally, you know, I don't have to buy it. You know, we've got a budget. Sometimes you've got an unlimited budget. You know, if you're looking at a college, it's sometimes $5,000 a year. So whatever you can do to make yourself a better coach and understand what you're doing, I'm all about it. But especially when it's something that's pretty cheap like that, rather than, I mean, you look at GPS, you can buy a house with, you know, small car with what GPS costs nowadays. So, uh, 
you know, I just believe in accessibility because I really hate this idea of ivory tower and everybody else is down here. That's crap. We shouldn't even pretend to have that. And, and no one is going to want sports science and monitoring if it seems like it's this. So we've got to bring it down to where it's usable and it's accessible. hundred percent. You know what I mean? And we yes, can sir. talk about it. Yes, sir. hundred percent. I'll tell you what, I think that that's an absolutely fantastic spot to leave it at. This is a killer half hour. Brad, I can't thank you enough for taking some time with us here to, to talk. And this will be up right away here on Monday. So it's, uh, awesome. I'm excited, man. This is great. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. an honor to be here, my man. Well, thank you very much for spending the time. And we'll be in touch soon. All right. Now, do you want me to use the, uh, the USOC or do you want me to use the ETSU logo? Oh, uh, which I don't even know which one on the website on your yeah for the for the podcast I think you need to use the I think I would say just to be safe use the ETSU okay I think you can use the ETSU Olympic training site but I I don't want to bet the house on it all right so just use the ETSU athletic departments yeah I would say that whatever that crest is yeah we did with the E that one's fine. Cool. Or the, the athletics logo, would that be okay? Yeah, that Perfect. one's fine. Either one. Brilliant. Hey, man, I can't thank you enough. This is awesome. This will be rolling Monday. This is going to melt faces. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I, it's, I start thinking of stuff, and I'm like, dang it, I should have said Oh, no, dude. This was, uh, yeah, this was, this was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you might need to turn your phone off. You might be getting some, some, some emails with this one because this was really yeah. – this was really good. Thanks a lot, brother. Have a great weekend, all right? You too. Thank Thanks, you. Man. Later. See you. And a huge thank you to today's guest, East Tennessee State's Dr. Brad DeWeese. Guys, awesome stuff. The whole idea of monitoring and where it really impacts what he's doing, keeping his athletes from feeling like lab rats, how they're looking at tests, what these tests are, and how they impact what they're doing. Absolutely fantastic information. I hope you guys enjoyed this talk as much as I did. And as always, if you did, please share it to the social media outlet of your choice. Any questions, thoughts, comments, leave them below on the Podomatic page, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, guys. We're just trying to get the best information out to all the coaches out there. And we'll be back next week with another great guest here on the podcast. Thanks again for listening, guys. We'll see you then.